Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment. If you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U-R-P. Our topic today is a new book by Island Press, 20 Years of Life, Why the Poor Die Earlier, and How to Challenge Inequity. Our guest is the book's author, Suzanne Bohan. Suzanne is a professional journalist who covered health and science for 12 years in the San Francisco Bay Area, and her writing has also been published in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and other newspapers nationwide. Suzanne has won nearly 20 journalism awards, including the 2010 White House Correspondents Association Edgar Allan Poe Award for the series Shortened Lives, Where You Live Matters which was about why life expectancies vary so dramatically between nearby neighborhoods. Her earlier book, 50 Simple Ways to Live a Longer Life, Everyday Techniques from the Forefront of Science, won a National Health Information Award for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Glad to be here. So Suzanne, as the title of your book suggests, studies have shown that folks who live in poorer neighborhoods can have life expectancies that are as much as 20 years less than folks who live in more well-off or middle-class neighborhoods. Can you help our audience understand why this disparity exists and why the poor die earlier? Yes, it has to do with really about access to resources and the chronic stress that people in these low-income communities often live with. And the stress, as one of my chapters in the book, it's called The Stress Effect, and it details just the toll of chronic stress on you day in and day out, just the little stressors, not the big catastrophic ones, but just the constant drain and how that really throws off your physiology and creates a disequilibrium and really ushers in a lot of diseases, why there's higher rates of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, hypertension, and so on. And of course, then it's about access to healthy resources that people living in these communities very often have no safe place to take a walk at night. When they get home, the most of them, they just want to get inside and they wouldn't dream of walking around the neighborhood or jogging. You know, it's just not a safe environment for that. And they would be putting themselves as a target. One community I profiled, there was a park across the street in this distressed neighborhood from a number of homes. Nobody ever went there because it was all drug dealers and loose dogs running around and terrified the kids. So there's no place to go, you know, recreate and relax. And 
of course, access to healthy food is a great challenge in many of these communities, especially if you don't have a car. There was a public health director recently from a neighboring county who recently described how she informally polled people in the emergency department in one of her hospitals. 62% said that lack of access to healthy food was one of the challenges they faced in their lives. And there's many other, I could go on, it's about the education systems that are you know, not functioning nearly as well as in wealthier communities. So kids are not graduating ready for college and career. And that, of course, opens up the door for greater income. And so it perpetuates these cycles in these communities. Yeah. And I think that you touch on in your book that the lack of economic resources is part of the equation, but what comes with the lack of economic resources is a lack of political clout. Right. So these communities lack services, they lack infrastructure investments, et cetera. So it goes beyond just that lack of income or lack of resources. Right. It's a lack of power. There's a feeling of disempowerment in these communities. And as is said, and as I that point out in the book and, and one passage that politics is really all about the fight for the allocation of scarce resources. And those with the louder voices get more of the resources or they get the policies passed that they want that are protective to their communities. Say no diesel trucks allowed through this roadway to prevent, you know, particulates and so on, or no recycling plant is going to open in our communities. They pass zoning laws to protect themselves from that. But when these lower income communities where people feel disempowered and not listened to, they don't even have a seat at the table. So when there's an allocation of resources, often they're just not even visible to anybody. So they don't get the resources that the others do. So what I'm writing about is uh, quite an amazing campaign underway in California that's been showing great success in empowering communities to get a seat at the table. These historically disadvantaged populations, and they're making enormous strides. Yeah. And one more note on that. I think that in addition to just not getting resources, there's a tendency for these things to downward cycle where these communities have less power and therefore they get negative amenities kind of piled on top of other negative amenities and it just goes downward. Right. So a big focus of your book is how to overcome these disparities. And and you look at the successes to date of the California Endowments Building Healthy Communities campaign that was launched in 2010. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of the Building Healthy Communities campaign and what the scope and intent of the project is? Yes. Really, it began when the CEO of the California Endowment, Dr. Robert Ross, uh, worked in the 1980s in a Camden, New Jersey clinic. And this was right when the crack epidemic began in earnest. And he just saw this onslaught of ill health among these you know, low-income residents. And he realized medical care couldn't tackle the problem. He was just patching them up and sending them back into the same environment that brought on the illnesses and disease. And so he dedicated his career to concentrating on building healthy communities, developing healthier communities so people could prevent these illnesses from happening in the first place. And so we went into public health and worked at various public health departments and then took over as a CEO of the California Endowment. I don't know the exact year but it was some several years before the BHC initiative launched. And he convinced the board of directors to dedicate most of the funding of the California Endowment, which has a $3.5 billion endowment, to concentrating on creating healthy communities in order to promote health rather than concentrating on medical care. 
Yeah, you know, my understanding is that you know part of the focus of the initiative, part of the the thinking behind the initiative is, was the fact that some of these communities are so economically under resourced, socially under resourced, and a lot of the proposed solutions, a lot of the efforts to help these communities over the years have been shorter term and you know kind of lacking in resources, and that the focus on this was to have a more sustained and more significant investment of resources in specific places. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yes. And really what the endowment philosophy is, and this is not theirs alone, but it's emerging in the world of philanthropy, is to fund change, not charity. And there's a recognition that if you're just pouring more money into these communities, you're not altering the underlying systems that are creating the dysfunction. And then people get, then this money, it sort of ameliorates and helps temporarily. But then when the funding dries up, conditions are the same and people feel frustrated by that. So the focus was on changing policies and laws that create these systems and create funding streams into these communities that never existed before because they never had a seat at the table basically. And they are definitely getting a seat at the table because of this community organizing work that's going on. And how many communities are the focus of this campaign and, and over what period of time and you know how much resources are being dedicated to the project? There are 14 communities from San Diego all the way up to the near the Oregon border. That's a unique community up there. It's Del Norte County and the adjacent tribal lands. So it's really reflects a lot of rural America up in the northern county, which is you know roughly two-thirds white population, Hispanic, and then the largest tribe in California, the Yurok tribe, is a part of this as well. So it's been really fascinating, the result of that work. And then also South LA, Oakland, and others. And it's a 10-year project, although as I mentioned in the epilogue of the book, it, they're now actually, it's working so well, they're thinking, why would we stop this? So they're planning on a second phase after 2020 when this winds down. And the goal is to have a number of policies and laws passed that they know will lead to a trajectory to better health. And then ultimately, they'll start measuring health outcomes. But that takes a few years. It's kind of, they liken that to the anti-smoking campaigns. When you stop smoking and, you know, you reduce rates, it takes a few years to see the results in terms of reduced disease rates. And so your book looks at how they've done in the first seven years, and you have a lot of very positive results to report. What are some of the more interesting or exciting outcomes so far? Let's see. Now, first off, when I first started reporting on this book in 2012, I mean, I really had to cross my fingers that this was going to work out. I didn't know. And it took a few years to actually start to see results. But by year five, they were really coming in. Although early on in 2012, they did have a major success in terms of the what this initiative concentrates on is deeply listening to what the community wants. So by listening, they understood throughout these communities that one of the leading concerns of parents was their kids were being kicked out of school, suspended and expelled for what seemed like minor matters. And it was unfairly falling on young you know, students of color, especially boys of color. So they realized that was in fact a health issue because they could only fund programs that relate to improving health due to uh, IRS rules. 
And they realized that high school graduation rates, if you graduate from high school, you have a five-year life expectancy increase over somebody who doesn't. So clearly there's a link. So long story short, there's an incredible organizing campaign throughout the state with all the 14 communities. They went up to the state level because they also, this campaign has a state team in Sacramento to help advance policy making. And To date, they now have 11 laws, state laws, that make it much harder to suspend and expel students for what's under the willful defiance category, which is a very subjective category, nothing to do with drug dealing or weapons or any kind of violence. Those still get you kicked out of school. But uh, suspension rates have plummeted 50% in California since this began. And high school graduation rates, last I checked, they're up in the high single digits last I checked over the same time. Time frame. And that's been credited directly to the work of this campaign. And it's beginning to spill out around the country. When you see these kinds of results in a state like California, others start to pay attention. It also had been going on elsewhere, but this has really raised the profile of it. Another one is in Fresno. Organizers there have been dogged in demanding more parklands for the poor south part of Fresno, whereas the north part had all these beautiful parks and soccer fields and the poorer part had virtually none. And also they had all kinds of industrial activity that was permitted in their neighborhoods and including this rendering plant with animal parts that was creating really, uh, you know, noxious conditions for neighbors. And long story short on that, they have turned around millions of dollars now in new funding for parks in the South part. They have a $75 million revitalization plan that they helped usher into Fresno to revive that poorer part. So they're making enormous strides in changing policies and living conditions in Fresno. So I think what you've articulated is that there's 14 pilot communities, but the results in those pilot communities are actually being felt statewide because of changes in laws, and then now beyond California. So what do you attribute the success of this program in terms of changing communities and changing health outcomes in a way that other programs have failed? Why is this successful where others have failed? Yes, that's a good question. And by the way, I mentioned two examples. I could spend 30 minutes describing many others having to do with food access and violence reduction. And, you know, it's making headlines in local papers that there's these coalitions forming that are gaining political power in low-income areas, and they're directly under this program. But the reason it's working is that they're concentrating not on providing services and giving resources that people need, but helping people learn to organize and demand that from the public sector, essentially, these policies that they need to live better, like zoning that does not allow a polluting plant to exist in their community or changing laws such that school suspension rates are more fair. But what is making it succeed where others didn't is, one, the duration. They committed to 10 years. And some of the communities were nervous maybe that if they weren't showing fast enough results, they might get dropped. And the endowment was, no, we're hanging in with you, period. And that's really paid off. And two, they are focusing on deeply listening to the community. They do not come in with a top-down approach. They hire somebody who's longtime resident who's been involved in civic affairs to run it. It's called the program manager in that community. And then they hire, they work with all the local community groups and they create a coalition. So you're 
bringing together all of these local community groups, and they are funded together for this initiative. And it's called, it's under the philosophy of collective impact. Rather than having all these groups kind of competing for different grant money and operating in a silo, they are all collectively working together. So they're making new relationships with community groups. A new power is emerging from that. And they're concentrating, again, on and laws that will pass and endure for quite some time. And so what happens to, you know, in three years, the 10 years will be up. What is the expectation will happen after the 10 years? Will these communities be self-sufficient and on their own or will there be some continuation of support? Yeah, that was the initial plan was that how do they transition out by 2020 and become self-sustaining? And a lot of them were looking into that. How do they get? They do need outside funding in many ways to keep this going. It, it helps greatly because you do have staffing requirements. You need office space. You need materials for ad campaigns and research reports and polling and so on. So they were getting there toward other funding coming in to sustain these community endeavors, as well as just volunteers stepping up. But they are going to continue this past 2020. They're now talking about, they call it BHC is the acronym. So BHC 2.0. And they're still deciding what that will look like. But it looks like they, as Tony Iton, who's the senior vice president in charge of the Building Healthy Communities campaign for the endowment, said, the board said, this is working so well, why would we stop it? So it's going to be fascinating to see something of this duration. Nothing like this has been done anywhere of this duration. So is there any thoughts that in 2020, they might also add additional communities to the... I think they're looking at that, yes. But I can't speak for them because that's all internal matters. But I got, I know they are analyzing that, you know, other communities to include. So, so every indication is this program has been a tremendous success and it's having significant impacts both on life expectancy, but in terms of community quality, economic development in these communities. Yeah. Can I interject on sure. something? It's actually not showing life expectancy increase right now because what they're measuring success by is number of policies and laws passed, which is something like 540 last count, probably more at this point, you know, a few more, but which they know will lead to better living conditions. They can't right now assess that lifespans are increasing or disease rates are declining. And economic development is a really a challenging situation, although there is definitely some in the realm of food access. But so really how they're measuring success is a very novel way of how many policies and laws have we passed that are health promoting in these communities? Okay. So the program is deemed to be a success in terms of those aspects. How do we replicate this? How do we bring this to other places given the resources that are needed to do that? Right. It really does require, it works better with philanthropy involved. Let's say you're a community group and you want to make some changes. You want, you're inspired by this and you want to start replicating it. You can do it, but it's generally shorter term campaigns that the small groups take on. So they might tackle one project, but to sustain it for years and years with the overall goal of improving community health, having that outside funder for all the reasons I mentioned, that the costs associated with that, having a staff person who can dedicate the time to keeping things organized and moving forward rather than relying on volunteers years, which can come and go, and also the costs associated with, because these, like the Fresno campaign I talked about with Parks, they ran an ad campaign that was really effective and caused a fair amount of controversy, but it was effective and got publicity for them. 
So the way it can last is when philanthropy shifts its position to helping community groups concentrate on changing policies and laws, then you can see this spread elsewhere. And there is a group in Massachusetts, the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, that began about three decades ago. And they've made huge changes in their community. However, they have about a $4 million budget as of last count. So it's not insubstantial. Where does that money come from? That came from various community organizations and probably grants from here and there. I haven't analyzed Dudley Street. But the way this is sustainable is, one, community groups need to recognize the power that they have to make change, especially if they team up with others. It's all about numbers. When you can bring the numbers down, you know, bring them down to City Hall and show up at meetings and have a sustained campaign, you can really make significant change. And the other thing communities need to understand is that what I describe in the book is a community organizing process that's very organized, that they do really high quality research. They follow a very disciplined approach. And it's described in the book. And other community organizing books will do the same. But if you follow a disciplined approach, you gain credibility. But for other communities to replicate this, there needs to be an additional funding stream to help communities develop deep capacity for community organizing and ideally have some state-level contacts that when there are issues at the community level that have statewide relevance, like reducing school suspensions, that you can take it up to the capital and fund efforts at that level. And the funding was advertisements, research, and so on to pass state laws and that benefit low-income communities everywhere, not just, you know, the ones involved in the campaign. Yeah, I wonder the degree to which, I wonder if, if local governments or local government associations or the, the state of California is looking at this effort and thinking about how they could be reallocating resources to help support this effort. So it wouldn't have to be philanthropy. What could be happening at the local government level to encourage this kind of community engagement? Yeah, it depends on more enlightened political leadership, because oftentimes, sometimes the local leadership finds this threatening, like in Fresno, which is actually, it typically, it's conservative politically. So they've made your strides in an area that has historically voted conservative politically. So they don't always welcome it. And in fact, one of the city council members in Fresno complained that this campaign was divisive, you know, it was creating divisions within the community, but they proceed and they got, you know, the endowment leadership gets calls from supervisors and so on saying, you know, back down. And Long Beach, for example, one of the supervisors there was getting upset over this community activism that was generated by this. So, I don't know that, you know, communities per se are going to fund it, but what we did have is like in Salinas, that leadership down there, the city manager and the public works director and others have become really appreciative of the role of citizen engagement and they now embrace it. And so they've been paying for training for their staff to be more inclusive in the way they work and so on. So... I think the funding would really, it needs to come from either people giving their time and philanthropy, as well as city governments recognizing that if they are serious about equity, and most of them 
describe equity as a goal, then they need to really seriously consider how they're allocating their resources and are they distributing it fairly and equitably and are policies fair and equitable and that it doesn't necessarily have to be that people are demanding change and taking all the time to form a campaign, but the city leadership can recognize it in advance of that, if I'm making myself clear out. Yes, that makes perfect sense. So the last chapter of your book, we're running a little short on time, but the last chapter of your book, you touch upon the how people of different political backgrounds kind of view health disparities and how they view the notion of empowering communities. Can you speak to that and give people any advice on how do you bring this message to different audiences? Yeah, that was uh, the Red and Blue Visions of Health chapter, which I found fascinating. There was a report done on how Republicans and Democrats view in what are the reasons for these 20-year lifespan gaps with the tendency on the Republican side to say, well, this is a result of bad choices. Whereas on the Democrat side, it was a tendency to recognize or see this as a lack of fairness that resources are not being fairly allocated. And really, the main message for people tending toward the conservative perspective is there's self-response. You have responsibility for your own health. You are 100% responsible for your own health. However, this report also noted that people will recognize that where you live, work, learn, and play does have an influence on your health and that everybody should have the same opportunity to access these types of healthful conditions. And the Democrat side sees things as interconnected. And so we all have a responsibility that we are not providing the resources, then people cannot make healthy choices. So the message is to use real kitchen table language and speak of personal responsibility, but weave it in with the message that people have to have the same opportunity to make the same healthy choices. And that if you don't have a safe place to exercise, if you can't get to affordable, healthy food options, then you're going to suffer a disproportionate health burden. The book is 20 Years of Life, Why the Poor Die Earlier and How to Challenge Inequity. It's available at islandpress.org backslash book backslash 20 hyphen years hyphen of hyphen life. Suzanne, is there any place else where people can go and learn about your work? Uh, yes, they can go to my website, uh, Suzanne Bohan. So Suzanne, B-O-H-A-N.com. And that will be there. And of course, I do have an Amazon author page also. All right. Fantastic. Suzanne, thanks for taking the time for being with us today. It's a fascinating topic. Thank you. And the book is fantastic. Everybody should buy it and read it. And we'd love to have you back some other time to talk about this again. Thank you. I really feel, you know, it's a message of civic engagement and how rewarding it is on so many levels. So I really look forward to hearing the conversation that emerges after it comes out. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.